Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 14th of November, Dave Emmett taught the first session at Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. In this session, Dave took us through the books of Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. Dave is one of the lecturers at St Melitus Theological College in Liverpool. Let's take a listen to the session. I've been asked to do the books of experience this morning. And um, I don't know about you guys, I think uh, we're all experiencing stuff at the moment. We feel it more acutely, don't we? What we're going through, what we're experiencing in life. We're in our second lockdown. Um, my guess is, is that most of you will at least know someone who was close to someone who's been affected with coronavirus. We're um, we're going through such strange times, and you know we're, we're all, we've all been in lockdown. We know what it is to um, have our have our mental health, even dare I say it, sort of um, stresses and strains on that as well. And we're all experiencing stuff. So I think it, it, it's it's a real privilege just to talk um, this morning and for us to go through. I think it's quite apt that we go through these books of experience. Um, up to now, you, you've, you've done 17 books, I believe, sort of going from Genesis to Esther. Although, have, you, have you done the Psalms as well? I think did someone say you've done the Psalms already. Um, but, but before you come to what we call the books of experience in, in, in the Bible, you've got these 17 books. Then you have five books. If you look at the handout, if you've got that in front of you, that'll help. Um, if you look at the handout, you see that we've got these five books of experience, including the Psalms, which we're not looking at today. Uh, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and Psalms form five books of experience. And then we've got another 17 books, the major and minor prophets that follow on from that. It's just one of those little interesting things you notice is it's 17, 5 and 17, the way it's divided in the Old Testament. Um, and what's different about them um, is all the books, what they have in common is they don't advance the story of Israel as a nation. Uh, the rest of the books do in some way, but these don't advance the story of Israel. Um, they present the experience of individuals, and, uh, and we're going to be looking at them this morning, but the, the people in question have, have grappled and, and, and wrestled with questions. Job, we're going to see, really wrestled with questions of suffering, questions about God, their theology, questions about wisdom, life and love and sexual union and and it's all there just an individuals we believe to timothy 3 16 17 you know inspired by the holy spirit in some sense or way it's put there for our benefit for our record that we can benefit from their experience um I want to say something um, as we as we look at this and as you know as i say i just really feel it's it's very timely in as a nation in the world as individuals as families what we're as church communities 
what we're going through now we're wrestling with things where's god in all of this what's happening why why um what's going on in the world what's happening in my life why is one of my relatives one of my friends got coronavirus i prayed they wouldn't what's happening have i sinned in some way what's going on and there's all these questions that we we do wrestle with i i think what we have to make clear at the beginning is in all the books we're looking at today Job, proverbs ecclesiastes song of songs is the genre, the style of writing is very different. And the way of thinking is a different way of thinking to the modern mindset. And um, we, we're looking at essentially um, Hebrew poetry. And the, the, the way you sort of grappled with something wasn't to do a systematic, write down some systematic theology uh, and write a book, was, was to put it in poetic form. And this was your way of, of doing, of thinking about God, of wrestling with the big questions of life. So you've got, you see in your notes, I've put down there the three kinds of poetry found in these books of experience. Lyric poetry, which, um, you know, usually by music, accompanied by music, it was on the lyre, um, very sort of strong emotional elements. And you, you'll have looked at that in the Psalms. Um, they're, they're mainly lyrical poetry. And then we have these other two forms of poetry, which we're going to be looking at today, which are didactic poetry, which, in other words, teaches um, something, principles of life through maxim, just, just little phrases or, um, or proverbs that, that sum up something fundamental about life or some truth in a way that captures the imagination and, and, and gets repeated. You know, you've got that didactic poetry and then you've got dramatic poetry, uh, which we'll see in Job and the Song of Songs. Um, unlike poetry in many other languages, we need to make it clear, Hebrew poetry isn't based on rhyme or rhythm. So you don't say, it seems I'm a poet and I do not know it. It doesn't go down well with the Hebrew mindset. It, it, it's far more sophisticated than that. And, and so you end up with the, these parallelisms. Um, so you have, for example, um, synonymous parallelism, where the thought of the first line is reinforced by the second line using different words but similar concepts so for example if put reference proverbs 12 28 you've got it there in the way of righteousness is life and that's the first line so what you're saying in the way of righteousness is what life and second line and in its pathway there is no death so do you get it life no death same thing but just saying it in a different way, in a different form. Another one, Song of Songs, 2, verse 1. I am the rose of Sharon, nice-looking flower, and the lily of the valleys. Well, all right, you're not a rose in the second line, but hey, we like lilies, don't we? Oh, well, perhaps we do. But, you know, I'm a rose, I'm a lily of the valleys. And so you get so same thing repeated, but in a different way. And then you have a second form of parallelism is the what we call the antithetic parallelism, where the second line contrasts with the first. So the book of Proverbs especially has a lot of these. So Proverbs 3 verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart, trust in him with all your heart. So we want something. If it's antithetic, we want something opposite now on the second line. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, opposite but beautiful poetry in the Hebrew mindset, beautiful poetry. And then you've got another one, Proverbs 14, 11, the house of the wicked will be destroyed. Opposite of that, but the tent of the upright, 
opposite to wicked, not destroyed, will flourish. House of the wicked, destroyed, tent of the upright, flourishes. That's the second form of parallelism. Another form is illustrative parallelism. Um, the first line uses a figure of speech to enlighten the main point being made by the second line. So, for example, um, like a Proverbs 11, 22, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. And then uh, uh, another one, Proverbs 25, 23, as a north wind brings rain, living in Manchester and around here, we, we, we know about this. As a north wind brings rain, so a sly tongue brings angry looks. So the north wind brings rain, any sly tongue, you'll get angry looks. You can be sure of that, so don't be sly. Uh, and then you've got the, the, the last one. There are others than this, but I've just given you four types. Um, climactic parallelism, where the second line mostly repeats the first, uh, though the latter part of the line is usually different. For example, it's not for kings, O Lemuel, Proverbs 31, 4. It's not for kings, O Lemuel, not for kings to drink wine. Okay, kings, don't drink wine. And not for rulers to, to, to crave beer. It's different, but, it, but it's repeating it in a, in, a, in, a, in a similar sort of way. And so um, just as well, just to sort of add on to that, is if you notice when you look through the Hebrew poetry, um, there, there won't be just couplets, two lines, often in triplets as well, or even whole standards. And so Hebrew poetry, before we launch into any other books, let, let's get this clear in our thinking. Hebrew poetry uses vivid imagery and figures of speech uh, and um, it includes sort of every kind of literary device really but something we've got to bear in mind if we're to interpret which is what we want to do as we read the word if we're to interpret it uh, correctly we've got to bear in mind um, you know poetry has to be read as poetry it's not history and it's not doctrine so you're not going to get a theological sort of doctrine emerge from this is poetry and you've got to read it as poetry. Of course, it's inspired by God. We believe two to be three, 16, 17. Of course, it's the living word of God. Of course, God uses it to speak to us today. But understand it is poetry. OK, so I wonder if you could just pop into breakout rooms for a couple of minutes and um, just give you two minutes. If you get the book of Proverbs and I'd say look in the middle towards the end of Proverbs, you'll see why in a bit, but but just find, just see if you can find an example in your breakout room of synonymous parallelism, antithetic parallelism and illustrative parallelism. Just just doesn't matter if you just just find some of those examples, similar ones to the ones I gave you and give you perhaps three minutes um, and then we'll come back. But just very quick, go into the middle of Proverbs middle to the end of Proverbs, not the very end, but sort of those middle chapters and see if you can find some, some examples of those. And we'll come back again in three minutes, okay? Yeah, that's uh, great. Can you, yeah, did, did you manage to find at least, in your groups, at least one or two of what we're talking about? Just give a thumbs up if you, yeah, brilliant. Some of you did, um, yeah, um, that's great. Okay, let's carry on. Um, so, um, when we when we talk about um, just the characters that we're looking at this morning in particular, obviously it's Job and Solomon are the two characters. 
Um, and, uh, you know, each of them, Job or Solomon, is either the main author or the main character, in the case of Job, the main character of a book. And each of them, I want to put it to you, we can view as a type um, of Christ. When I say a type of Christ, um, we're, we're, we're talking, you know, not looking at the Psalms today, we're looking at Job and Solomon, but as a type of Christ, I mean, someone whose life and experience points forward to, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, they point forward to um, and illustrate certain features of Christ. Remember Jesus on the road to Emmaus um, when he was with Cleopas and the unnamed disciple in Luke 24. And it says in Luke 24, 45, he, he showed them himself, isn't it, in, uh, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and beginning with the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, he, he showed how Christ was there, how he was present in all the scriptures. Um, it's interesting that in that verse, it talks about, uh, you know, in the books of the law, Moses and the prophets and Psalms, it doesn't talk about the books of experience as in terms of Job, Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. What I wanted to see by the end of this morning is that Christ is present in the, these books too. Um, for example, Job, uh, he emerges as a just man without fault. That's what's said about him in Job 1 verse 8. And what's amazing about Job, in spite of the severe suffering he goes through, that status is maintained, that he's, you know, a just man without fault. And, um, and as the story goes on through the book of Job, what do we see? We see his stability um, in the face of tremendous trial. We see his patience. And we see this, you know, with three friends and then a younger guy who comes in at the end. Uh, we see enormous, enormous dignity. I don't know, you know, if you're feeling a bit down and miserable and got at by, you think, you know, it might even be, uh, and to have people around you saying, well, it's your fault, isn't it? And, you know, I would not always keep dignified. And I have not always kept dignified in, in, in the face of such, such comfort. Um, but, but, but here we go. Um, yeah, so Carol, Job was a real person. We're, we're going to look at that in a second. But, but we see a picture of Christ in all respects. Christ who came, God coming to earth, came. Um, he was in all respects tempted as we are, yet did not sin, Hebrews 4, 5. And uh, what do we see about just, you know, I think I've put it there in, in, in your notes. You can uh, put it, you know, some, some characteristics of that. He was a, a man. Job was a man of integrity, goodness and justice. He was sinless, um, not completely sinless because only Christ uh, lived like that. But the book, from the, in, 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 from the point of view of the book, it emphasizes um, his, 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 his uprightness. And perhaps sinless is, is too strong a word, but he was upright. Uh, and in, in that way, he was a type of Christ. There was nobody equal to him, none like him. He was a target of Satan um, with the permission of God, as Jesus was. He was a man of sorrows who experienced deep grief. He was misunderstood, yet he retained his integrity and dignity. And at the end of his life, as we'll see, he was vindicated by God. And at the end of his life, he prayed for his friends. These are all similarities to Jesus. Um, and then when we look at Solomon, we're going to see Solomon, very much a, a man of insight. He was David's son. He became known throughout the world for his wealth, his greatness, and above all, his wisdom. 
and there's just this, this like you know today you don't have to be a christian or have read your bible to talk about it. it's got the wisdom of solomon it's a, it's, a, it's a little phrase that everybody will use and, and the legendary wisdom of solomon is preserved in, in you know in, in the books that we're looking at today uh, and in these we see solomon to be a shrewd observer of life and its meaning um and and, and you know in, in the non-literary realm, uh, the big achievement of his life was the building of the, the, the temple in Jerusalem. Well, when you look at Jesus, he was not David's son. He was David's greater son who will rule forever. Jesus has inherited a kingdom from his father that's greater than any political one you can see today. And his wisdom exceeds that of the wisest men. He's become, and Jesus is, we read in, in, in 1 Peter 2, 5, is the foundation of a new temple, um, one consisting, of course, of living stones. You and me, we're the living stones of that temple is the exciting thing. So both Solomon and Job are, are types of Christ in that way. Um, let's look at uh, the, the book of Job then in, in, in more detail before we go into our first break. And so it's this debate in poetic form. Um, it has a sort of an introduction, a prologue uh, that sets the scene, first two chapters, and an epilogue that's quite brief, really, just 10 verses at the end, chapter 42, 7 to 17. And it's been, um, someone called it a, a, a dramatic poem framed in an epic story. And um, the author of Job, we don't know who wrote it. Um, we do know that it was written in the land of us. Um, the precise location of us, we don't really know where that was. It could be somewhere around modern day southwestern Jordan, southern Israel. Um, we, we, we're not sure about that. And so in many ways, it really doesn't matter. But it was, it was somewhere in sort of biblical territory, if you like. Uh, and we know it's um, probably um, the oldest book in the Bible. And um, when you look at the internal evidence, what's written, uh, there it, it points to it having been written in the days of the patriarchs possibly between genesis chapter 11 the tower of babel and genesis 12 you know abraham coming on the scene um if you look the the evidence for that is is the length of job's life he, he lived 142 years after the end of the book um uh, he might have been 70 some reckon uh, when his troubles started. So he lived this enormously long life, um, which fits in with the pre-Babel um, length of, uh, of years when you look at that. Also, just the way his wealth was measured, um, it wasn't measured in terms of gold and silver, it was measured in terms of livestock. Um, and, uh, and, and like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he was the priest of his family and offered sacrifices. Um, there's no mention of Israel. There's no mention of the Exodus. There's no mention of the Mosaic law or the tabernacle. Um, and also the name used for God is Al Shaddai, the Almighty, rather than Yahweh, the Lord, which suggests something of a pre-Mosaic date. Um, Carol asked the question earlier on, that, you know, was he, a, was he a real figure in history? Well, Ezekiel 14, 20, um, you know, he's named there along with Noah and Daniel as examples of righteous people. James 5, verse 11, James cites him as an example of steadfastness, which would strongly suggest that this isn't a mythical character, but he's a real uh, person. So the outline of the book you've got in your handout. So we've got, you know, we can talk about his dilemma, 
the debate and the deliverance that comes. But the, the, the basic question addressed by the book is why? <laughs> why do the righteous suffer? Um, the focus of the book isn't on suffering itself, but actually it doesn't, it doesn't you know, it, it's what Job learnt through his suffering. What happened to him? What did he learn through this? Uh, and the main debate after the introduction where, you know, which, which Job never gets to hear about and doesn't know what's going on, but the main debate centers, uh, centers on, on, on the perceived reasons for Job's troubles. Um, his three friends come along and offer completely inadequate, oversimplified solutions that link his suffering with his alleged sinful acts. Uh, and they all come in and chip in their bit. And then the young man, Elihu, the fourth friend, uh, points out that God can use suffering to purify and teach the righteous, which is perhaps it's nearer the truth. It's only when God himself finally speaks, however, that suddenly when God comes into the debate, everything's put into proper perspective. And while Job, he doesn't receive any, you know, if you're looking at the book of Job and think I'm going to get clear answers, let me say straight away, Job didn't get any um, to, you know, to many of his questions. But as you read the book of Job, so you're left with a, with a heightened sense of the sovereignty of God, the greatness of God and God's providence. And you, you, you end up reading the book of Job and you, if you, read, you think God is worthy of worship, no matter what, no matter what he chooses to do. Um, uh, you know, it really brings us to the edge. It confronts us with failure, with suffering, for which there's no explanation. Uh, and... Um, so let, let's have a look at it. And so we've got his dilemma. Um, Job 1.1, 1, 1, in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. He was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. This was a good guy. This, there was, he wasn't sinning. He wasn't rebelling. He, he, he feared God upright. And um, he was never, you know, you just use your logic a bit. Human logic says this guy is not a candidate for disaster. Uh, and this was the dilemma, the fact that disaster came upon him. This was the dilemma that faced, you know, Job and his friends. Um, you know, this prologue, though, does give us a glimpse of events behind the scenes, which it's underlining this. Remember, neither Job nor his companions had this insight into what was going on behind the scenes. Because here we see Satan saying no one loves God from pure motives. You only love God. The reason they only love God is for material blessings that you give them. That's in verses 9 to 11 of chapter 1. And, and, and to refute that charge, God permits Satan to strike Job within certain limits. And you can read about that, you know, verse 12 of chapter 1, verse 6 of chapter 2. Uh, and Job, as a result of that, Job loses his wealth, his family, his health. Uh, resulting in his wife's great advice to him, you know, curse God and die, <laughs> chapter 2, verse 9. But, but in all this, did he do it? No, I won't curse God. Um, in all this, it says, you know, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. He refused to say that God had done wrong, um, chapter 1, verse 22, chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, and so that's the sort of the introduction and then in come Job's comforters. Um, you know, Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and then the young man, Elihu, and finally, of course, God. And, and if this poetry um, really show 
the finite minds of human beings trying to grapple with the profound questions raised by, by what was going on in Job's life. Um, you know, I, I, you're on the School of Theology and um, I say to students I teach, I, mean, I just say, just because it's my own experience, is the more I learn about God, the less I realize I know. <laughs> and, um, you know, God forbid that any of us would ever think, oh, I've done School of Theology or I've done this course or whatever, that I now know it all. We don't. And I think the book of Job is just a massive, um, massive affront, if you like, to any, any pride or any arrogance that could be welling up within us because we're studying theology. It's just that you don't know it all. And, um, you know, Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar, they come along a bit like know-it-alls in some ways to varying degrees. Um, when they saw him, we read in Job 2, 12, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. So there was some empathy. Come on. They didn't just plunge in. We sometimes think of them as those that they sat with him for seven days and seven nights and suffered with him. Really a good thing to do, isn't it, before you speak? Um, but after Job breaks his, the silence in a, a debate, basically three cycles to it takes place and each of the three men makes their observations all of which every single one of them link to varying degrees what's going on in job's life with it must be because you sinned because we know god's good and we know you know god wouldn't do this to you therefore you must have sinned um you know for him to have done this uh, and job is is quite robust in his replies um uh, and the arguments, well, if, if you got sort of Eliphaz, in he comes, Eliphaz is the guy who says, I've seen it all. Listen, guys, I've seen it all. I know how these things are. I've seen, I've seen, he says, in 4, 8, 5, 3, 15 to 7, what I've seen, I'm going to declare to you. Uh, and, um, and he also claims some extra sort of special spiritual illumination, uh, which may or may not have happened, but he claims it. In chapter 4, verse 12, 16, he talks about a spirit gliding past my face and the hair of my flesh stood up. Um, and so his whole argument, his whole thesis is based on experience. I've seen it all and I've had sort of this spiritual encounter of a spirit gliding past my face and my hair standing on end. I've got goosebumps, guys, and I've had experience. And I'm telling you now, this is this is what I see. And. He tells Job, you know, to appeal to God in 5 verse 8. And, uh, and, 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 and he, you know, he, he's Job, you know, uh, uh, for him to take their advice and apply it to yourself. He says, take my advice. Unimpressed with Job's reply, his second speech is shorter because Job isn't taking it and it's more severe and doesn't advance his argument, but reinforces his point. And, and finally, in his third speech, um, he accuses Job of a sin, um, his hinted at in previous ones in chapter 22 um, and his closing comment is Job you should submit to God and be at peace with him Eliphaz has got a real narrow view of God's dealing based on experience alone and his attitude is summarized in his statement that God should not despise the discipline of the almighty chapter 5 verse 17 don't despise it this is God disciplining you uh, Job you've sinned you're suffering because you've sinned um, then in comes Bildad um, Bildad, the voice of tradition, ask the former de generations, they'll instruct you, 
And he's more forthright than Eliphaz. And, uh, and, and, you know, and he says, you must be sinning. Uh, and the death of Job's children surely proves it. And if Job has been pure and upright, God wouldn't have, would have by now restored him. Chapter eight, you read him saying that. And his second speech gets even stronger still with, with lots of proverbial maxims related to Job's condition and, and concluding in, in chapter 18, verse 21, surely such is a dwelling of an evil man. You're an evil man, Job. This is why it's happening to you. And, um, and, and, and so, you know, Bildad, he, he sees Job as a hypocrite. You claim to be without sin, yet you're in trouble because of it. And then in comes Zophar. Um, he's just really, um, well, he, he's just, what can you say about Zophar? He, he just comes in really far less, no attempt to be courteous. He's really drastic in the way he talks to, to Job and really dogmatic, uh, clothed to reason and works from his own assumptions. He assumes throughout all the way, Job, you must have seen chapter 11, verse 6. And by the time he makes his first contribution, he's really got annoyed with Job and simply makes an appeal for Job to put away that sin that's in your hand. And um, his speech is just a real vehement denunciation of Job, you've been punished as an evildoer. Job's responses, uh, he, you know, in places, Job is rash. He makes statements that reflect the intensity of his sufferings. He's, He's driven to exasperation by the unbending protestations of these three friends who have no real answers to the issues he raises. I mean, can you put yourself in Job's place? Uh, you know, what does he say in Job 16, two to four? I've heard many things like these. Miserable comforters are you all. Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? I also could speak like you if you were in my place. I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you. So in these first round of speeches, the three have contended that God always prospers the upright and punishes the wrongdoer. Job's reply, chapter 9, 21, and chapter 10, 40, I am blameless. And in the second round, it's only the wicked who suffer. Uh, and the life of the wicked is short. Job, again, he just says, you know, the wicked do not always suffer. Some seem to escape. Um, you can't say the wicked always So I've seen wicked people prosper. Um, and... Um, and in the third round, he just affirms his righteousness. I, I, I will never admit you're in the right till I die. Job 27, verse 5. I will not deny uh, my integrity. And chapter 30 just talks about his, his present humiliation, which is such stark contrast to his happy, happy past when he was in his prime, chapter 29, 34. Chapter 31 is his final plea of innocence before these four uh, comforters. You know, he, he says, I, I, the three comforters, you know, I've not been guilty of sensual sins, sexual sins, chapter 1, verse 12, abusing power, for, um, that, you know, in sorry, this chapter 31, um, 13 to 23, I've not abused my power. I've not trusted in wealth, 24, 4, 28. I've not, I, 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 I've not been caring for my enemies. Uh, 2934. And so he comes and, and he just has had the three friends speaking, oh, that I had someone, chapter 31, verse 35, oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Um, let the, my accuser put his indictment in writing. I would give an account of my every step like a prince. I would approach him. The words of Job are ended, chapter 31. Uh, and so 
the discussion just comes to an end with, with deadlock. There isn't a solution coming from this debate. There's no easy solution at all. And then in steps Elihu, young Elihu, chapter 32, uh, he starts to speak. And he was angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. And he was angry with the three friends because they'd found no way to refute um, a Job and, and, and had condemned him. And Elihu claims to have wisdom, despite his relative youth, is a bit like, you know, Paul writes to Timothy, it's a spirit in the man, the breath of the almighty that gives him understanding, he says 32 verse 8, it's not just experience and uh, history and tradition. But unlike the free friends, he's different because he appeals to Job as a brother, another man taken from the clay. So he's different, he's coming into Job, I'm just like you, you're a brother, I'm pinched from the clay is the phrase he uses in one translation. Um, no fear of me should alarm you, chapter 33, six to seven. So it's a bit more refreshing, this attitude. Uh, it, it lifts the debate to a higher level. And Elihu affirms, rightly, obviously, that God is greater than man, who has no right or authority to require an explanation from him. And chapter 33, 12 to 14, he says that, you know, God is greater than man and doesn't need to explain what he's doing to us and he recounts much of Job's dilemma and complaint as, as you know as he develops his reply but he introduces a new note this is the new bit that Elihu brings into debate he says suffering isn't necessarily punitive it's not necessarily a punishment it can also be a corrective um, it may come to chasten but it's always impartial and restores a man to prosperity is Elihu's argument. Uh, and if you look at chapter 33, verse 14, he says, God does speak to turn man from wrongdoing, verses 17 to 90, keep him from pride, to preserve his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword, or a man may be chastened. Uh, and again, later on, he develops a similar sort of argument in chapter you know, 36, but those who suffer, he delivers in their suffering um, to a spacious place, free from restriction, to the comfort of your table, laid mature. So there are differences between Elihu's speech and those of the three friends. They accuse Job of suffering because of his sin. Elihu says Job is now sinning because of his suffering. Um, and and it, his suffering has driven him to the sin of self-righteousness. So the suffering, um, you, you get the difference. Uh, the three friends say you're suffering because of your sin. Elihu says the suffering has driven you to the sin of self-righteousness. Um, and if you think about that, um, you know, put yourself in Job's place for a minute Um yeah, undeserved suffering. Yes, it, it, it's it, 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 it's what Job is saying. His case, I don't deserve this. I, I have lived a righteous life. But it's the attitude that can creep in, in terms of, therefore, I'm righteous. And, um, you know, the, the self-justification of it. The Job, um, you know, it all comes to, a, you know, a climax, if you like, obviously, as God speaks. And Job asked for God to speak. And chapter 38, then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. And he said, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. 
I'm going to ask you some questions and you're going to answer me. Brace yourself like a man. It's nice. I'm going to ask you some questions and you shall answer me. What God says, though, is not what we expect. Where it's all been leading up to, we think God's going to come and explain everything, the point of suffering and uh, this sort of age-old question, we're going to find an answer, but not, we don't get it. He doesn't answer Job's questions directly, nor does he begin to explain the wider issues of providence and the suffering of a righteous. In fact, God um, does not present an argument at all. Instead, he just declares his infinite controlling power over the heavens and earth and all created things. And in contrast, when the people's problems pale into insignificance when compared with his almighty greatness. Um, you, you can't understand the meaning of many trials. God doesn't explain them. Um, and, and uh, you know, from the absence of explanation, we learn that there are some things about human suffering that God cannot explain to us without designing, destroying the, the purpose for which they're designed to fulfill. Um, Suffering, you know, from what God says to Job as well, suffering does not mean that God is absent or unaware. And here Job learns that God has been watching, hearing and caring in spite of all that's been going on. Uh, and it was God's intention to bring Job to a place where he trusted in God in spite of seeming contradictions and without present explanations. Uh, God it's as though God allowed Job to get to the end of himself, to the end of his self-righteousness, his self-vindication and his own wisdom so that he could find his all in God. Um, Job 44, 5, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth, says Job. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I'll say no more. Through it all, what do we see? Job catches a glimpse of God's perspective and acknowledges God's sovereignty. My Job 42, five to six, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It, it's what happens when we begin to realize coronavirus, um, political decisions we don't like being taken, uh, things that we've prophesied not happening, whatever it might be, is come on, God is God, uh, and he does care, and he wants us to be in a place where our trust is not dependent on what's going on, what's happening. But God turns in the epilogue, in the conclusion, um, chapter 42, just these 10 verses, God says to Eliphaz and expresses his anger at the arguments that he, Bildad and Zophar, have advanced. Uh, and at the same time, God vindicates Job, who has spoken rightly about God. And so, you know, the three friends repent and offer sacrifices. And this beautiful theme where Job prays for those that have not been great towards him. Uh, and interestingly, it's just interesting just, just to note, God offers no rebuke to the speech of the young man, Elihu. Um, Elihu isn't rebuked by God. And then we read, you know, God restores this bit that we all love to read when you're in the book of Job. Sometimes you flick through, don't you, if you're reading it, just let's get to the end quickly. But, but this, this beautiful bit at the end where God restores this. For after Job had prayed for his friends, 
the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. And so he died old and full of years. Just a beautiful ending. Um, so Satan's challenge with which the book began became God's opportunity to build up Job's life in ways uh, that transcended human reason. And Job becomes a model, if you like, for all who patiently endure in times of suffering. Um, so we know James 5 verse 11. James sums it up, really. He says this, um, as you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And there's the truth for us to grasp from the book of Job is, you know, God is full of compassion and mercy. Job persevered. Job was steadfast in it all. Um, I'm not going to do it in breakout rooms because we're going to break for a coffee break now. But if you, you know, do please do this sometime. I think it's a challenge to us all in terms of what does the book of Job say to us? Um, first half of Job 13, verse 15, um, you know, it says this, though he slay me, Job says, yet will I hope in him. Challenge to you all. Uh, Job had, you know, he'd, he'd endured troubles of every kind, but his confidence remained in God. Uh, you know, even if God causes troubles to what would, what, what's our attitude? Um, you know, is there something of our hope and our trust in God that we would say, even though he slay me, yet will I hope in him? Um, we'll, we'll break now for, for coffee. Just looking at what we've got in the, in the chat, we've got a few comments just saying uh, how helpful it is or how easy it is to identify with what you're saying. Um, we've also got three questions that it'd be good to pick up on. Um, so I, I wonder if the best way to do it, um, if people are willing to do so, is um, the people have asked a question to to unmute themselves and can ask it in person, maybe. Uh, but if you'd rather not do it, I could read the question too. Uh, but we've got questions from Peter, a question from Carol, and a question from Becky. So, uh, Peter, do you want to um, unmute yourself and ask your question about the uh, the different parallelism? Um, sure. Uh, just the, the description of the synonymous parallelism and climactic parallelism seem very similar. And just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about any particular differences. Yeah, th thanks, Peter. Um, good question. I, I think the, the synonymous is the emphasis would be on the thing being um, the same, uh, but just different words and concepts. And the, the so for example, the example I gave was I'm the Rose of Sharon, Lily of the Valley. It, it, it is the same. There's not really much different. The climactic one would be actually taking it um, up a notch. Um, and so I can't think of the example we gave in that at the moment. But but there's, yeah, there's, there's not a huge, I, I wouldn't, um, it's, it's, it's just a technical, very technical point, I think. And there are other, that if you, you can probably Google it. I don't know, but you will find if you go into when you talk books or articles on parallelisms in in Hebrew writing that there are more sorts than this sort. And I think what I'm trying to do there is just give you some examples and see how. I think the main point is to get hold of it. And yeah, it, it's it the, the climactic one would take it would be would be different. Um, uh, and it, but uh, you know, 
maybe taking it up a notch more. Um, so, so for, here I found the example so I can, so it's not for kings or Lemuel, the, the climactic one, not for kings or Lemuel to drink wine, all right, drinking wine is one level. Um, it goes climactic because it says Norfolk rulers to crave beer. <laughs> so um, give me a beer, <laughs> I could murder a pint. No, it's, it, it, it's not that, it, it's, hang on, it, it, it's, it's taking it up a notch. Does, it, does that help, Peter? Yeah, great, thanks. Good. Great. Um, Carol, do you want to unmute yourself and ask you a question, if you can? Yeah, it seems rather a black and white question. I'm sorry, because none of this is black and white. Um, it just seems that um, it's God allowed Satan to, to, to push this through almost. And um, so in actual fact, God didn't engineer the, the situation of these terrible things, but, but allowed them and yet and yet works works the, the the restoration through that is 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 that is that reasonable yeah i mean you, you what you've got isn't it? it's just this long-standing question isn't it as why does a just and holy god allow evil in the world and you're quite right to point out carolyn you know totally right and i think this is essential um, that none of us sort of ever see God as the author of evil. And yet God in his sovereignty has given free will. And I think the thing that puzzles us all, if we're honest about this, is, um, and I, you know, you, you, some of Job's protestations and, and concerns, you, you, you do enormously sympathize with him. Hang on, I've been, I've been trying my hardest here. I've been really living a just and holy life, and you know, and and uh, and and God doesn't contradict that with him. But but in in all of that, um, yet God gives permission to Satan to to come in and bring um, wreak havoc on him. I think sometimes we we we've really got to understand God in His sovereignty. There's there's a level that we just don't see um, that we fail to comprehend, and I think it's. It's Corey Ten Boom once talked about the, 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 the patchwork quilt or whatever it was that sort of, you know, when you turn it the other way around, it's sort of, it, it's, it's all a complete mess and utter failure. When you turn it the right way around, it's sort of, oh, I can see now why it's like that. And it's a bit like that. There will be a day when, you know, the, the books, the accounts will be settled, as it were, and we will understand more. I'm not sure we'll necessarily understand every single thing, but we will understand more fully why some things have happened in our lives. And um, yeah, and at the moment, it certainly looks like undeserved suffering. And it's not about, it's not always about, see, God wanted the best for, for, for Job. And because of what happened, he was a, he ended up with more than he had at the beginning. Um, now I know this family and all, all this, that, that, what, what about them? But, but the focus of the story is on Job. And, um, and we just have to look at that in, in, from that perspective. Thank you. Okay, um, Becky, do you want to ask you a question? Hi, um, yeah, so about Job and it's about the friends and the things that they say. And I think sometimes what can be difficult is some of what they say sounds kind of true, doesn't it? It sounds like other parts of the Bible. So there's bits where it talks about, like in Hebrews 12 and Proverbs 3, it talks about how God disciplines those that he loves. Which yeah sometimes comes out and what they say and I was going to say would it be fair to say of the friends that not everything they say is technically 
wrong, but rather it's their interpretation interpretation and their application of what they're saying is warped. Yeah, um, I, I think it's it, it's to do with punishment versus discipline. Right. And I think um, if what the friends what doesn't come across from the, the friends is like I my children are all adults now, but I love them to bits and I've always loved them to bits. And um, I know in my exasperation at times, I've punished them <laughs> and that's not been good. And I'm not proud about that, but I know at other times there's been a discipline that I've imposed upon them out of love. Uh, and I think um, what the friends are saying is, is that God is actually punishing you. And um, that the, if they sort of backed it up with God really loves you, Job. And um, even though you've, you know, even if you've done, you might have sinned and we don't know about it. God still loves you and it's the discipline it's for you good. That would be a very different argument to what they were putting to Job, which is, well, you deserve it. And, um, you know, they, 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 they missed it, I think, um, there. But I absolutely you're right is um discipline a good father disciplines his children you're absolutely right there um and, and so from that point of view yeah there is there is you know that definitely that you're, you're right um god does discipline in that verse what if you put hebrews 12 6 and uh proverbs 3 12 i mean there's a beautiful verse in proverbs which we might look at in a bit as well about god pouring out his spirit when we repent and uh, uh you know and it's a you know, but you, you've also got the verses that talk about the kindness of God, the grace of God that leads us to repentance. And it isn't God isn't out to, you know, what is discipline? And I think that's sometimes we, we equate discipline with punishment. Um, does that help, Becky? Yes, thank you. Right. Thank you for, for asking the questions. Um, great reflection there, Keith, in the, in the chat as well about being careful where you go for, for counsel and advice from this story. Uh, what we're going to do, we're going to jump back into the session now for the, the other books of experience. Um, we'll do more Q&A at the end as well, though. So keep the questions coming if you've got them, and we'll have another moment to ask them uh, after after we finish the teaching. So, Dave, do you want to uh, pick yeah. it up where you yeah. left off? Um, we're sort of we're stopping at 2211. That's right, is it? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay. So let's carry on. Um, putting our skates on a bit, I think, really. But let's go on into the book of Proverbs. Um, you know, Solomon, you know, it's an amazing thing happened, is it? 1 Kings 3, verse 9, where God, um, you know, tells Solomon he can have what he asks for. What's the one thing you want? And um, Solomon asks for wisdom. Um, and so that wisdom, as we said earlier on, it just became proverbial. And you can read about it in 1 Kings 4, um, 29 to 34. God gave Solomon wisdom, great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Beautiful, again, poetic writing in 1 Kings there. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the East and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. Uh, wiser than any other man. Um, his fame spread, verse 34, his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke, here's the bit, he spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005, not 1,004, 1,005. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. And so We'll look at the song a bit later on, but the Song of Songs, his best song out of the thousand and five it wrote. But the, but looking at the book of Proverbs, so this is a written record of, of that wisdom. It's described in chapter one, verse one, as the Proverbs of Solomon, 
son of David. So this book is, it, 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 you've got a New Testament equivalent or similar thought style of writing with the book of James, the brother of Jesus who wrote that. But, but here you've got Solomon sort of pithy sayings, wise observations sort of coming at you on all sorts of different things. And someone described them as laws from heaven for life on earth. And I like that, laws from heaven for life on earth. Um, and the book of Proverbs is to our practical life what Psalms is to our spiritual life, but in reverse, let me explain. Um, Psalms directs the heart of the individual away from the circumstances of life towards God. You, you must have noticed that when you read, looked at Psalms. It takes you to God. Don't look at your circuit, look at God. Yet I will rejoice. You know, this is going on, that's going on. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord and all of this sort of stuff. My soul bless the Lord. It's looking at God. Proverbs, if you like, takes the wisdom of God and focuses it into terse, you know, striking sayings applicable to the practical issues of life. So it's bringing heaven to earth, we could say. Um, so by means of carefully chosen words, a proverb focuses the mind on a particular truth and it can use similes, metaphors, poetic expressions or stark contrasts, a bit like the parallelisms in some ways. Um, the English word proverb literally means a brief saying in the place of many words from the Latin pro, for, and verba words. Um, more important for us, however, is the Hebrew word translated for proverbs, which is mishle, which, which carries a broader meaning uh, called a taunt in Isaiah 14.4, an oracle in Numbers 23.7 and 18, and a parable in Ezekiel 17.2. So, some of the proverbs are more like short parables or poems in their construction. So it's got, looking at the book, it's got three sections to it, and you've got that in your handout. Chapters 1 to 9, the way of wisdom. Chapters 10 to 24, the main collection of Solomon's proverbs. And chapter 25 to 31, further proverbs of Solomon, Orga, and Lemuel. So people reckon... Um, don't ask me how, um, but to reckon this, you know, was sort of Solomon writing um, when he was around about sort of 40, writing to his son is, is, is the premise based on that, I think, is um, uh, for his sons. But the, the way of wisdom, let's look at it. So the way of wisdom, chapters one to nine. Um, so these first chapters form in some ways a small book in themselves, introduced by a short introduction outlining its purpose in Proverbs 1, 2 to 3. It's for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life. This word discipline is coming up quite a bit there, Becky. Um, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Um, so it stresses, you know, the truths are for wise and discerning people. In verse five, summarizes what is the major theme of the book in, in, in verse seven of chapter one, that it's the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Um, so in, in this section, uh, both wisdom and folly are personified, portrayed as people. And, you know, and there's little allegories, little stories told about them. wisdom. The advice of wisdom um, comes out, especially in, cha you know, in chapter three. Uh, wisdom should be sought after because her, she's feminine wisdom, her ways are a tree of life, chapter 3, verse 18, whose fruit is a life of blessing. Um, wisdom in chapter 8 calls out to give advice and correction to the wayward and the simple and the fool. And just the, 
the incomparable wisdom will protect and guard the one who chooses wisdom, it says in chapter 8, verse 10, a person, almost a person you choose. I'm going after wisdom. Um, and hey, congratulations to all of you. But, you know, doing the school of theology, what are you doing? You're going after wisdom. You're loving the Lord your God with all your mind and you're pursuing wisdom. Good sign for you. Um, folly, though, in contrast, the woman folly is loud, 9 verse 13. She calls out to distract men from the way of wisdom, luring in the simple who lack judgment in chapter 9, verse 16, to share in her illicit pleasures. Uh, but it says in chapter 9, verse 18, all the guests are in the depths of the grave. Uh, and this section, this first section, closes. 10, in, in, thank you. Closes in, in chapter 9, verse 10. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Um, so the main collection, moving on to the main collection, um, many commentators note that the previous section, uh, you know, it concerns itself chiefly with the conduct of early life. It, it, it warns against the temptations that, that can captivate the attention of the young. And this second section, by contrast, is designed for use of people who are more mature, um, uh, in, you know, and advanced beyond youth. And so the style of respective sections is different. This main collection, this second part, is mainly individual couplets, two lines. The, the section illustrates uh, two main types of proverbial device used throughout the book. So you've got contrasts. I mean, th this is throughout the book, but it's especially in this middle section. You've got contrasts, um, you know, they stick in the mind because of the starkness of their imagery. So for example, uh, Proverbs 10, verse 7, the memory of the righteous will be a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. Uh, uh, I love Proverbs. Um, and then 1423, another example, all hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Um, and so you've got those contrasts and you've got completions is, is, is the other style. Um, and there... The second line agrees with the first, but adds to it or carries it a step further. It's a bit like the parallelisms, you know, the, 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 the climactic one. Um, the most common hinge word, therefore, isn't but, but and. So instead of seeing a but, you see an and. For example, commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. Proverbs 16, verse 3. Commit and your plans will succeed. Um, Proverbs 19, verse 6, many curry favour with a ruler. And everyone is the friend of the man who gives gifts. Uh, so you've got that, 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 you know, that's the style of that main section. Then going into the final section of Proverbs, you've got um, the Proverbs of Solomon, Agur, and Lemuel, uh, chapters 25 to 31. And it's distinct in that it's said to have been compiled Proverbs of Solomon and from, you know, Agur and Lemuel were compiled in the time of Hezekiah. Uh, chapter 25, verse 1 says, these are more Proverbs of Solomon copied by the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Uh, and the style of Solomon's Proverbs in 25 to 29 is similar uh, to that of the previous ones. But this, here, the contrasting and completive couplets uh, interspersed with longer wise sayings. So it's a little bit different, the style. And then in chapter 30, you've got the, the, the sayings of Agur, uh, it says in 30 verse 1, about 
we don't know. We don't know anything about him really. He was probably a wise man, um, like you know, it mentions the wise men in One Kings four thirty one, Ethan and Heman, uh, you know, as those whom Solomon surpassed in wisdom. They were wise, but Solomon was wiser. And chapter thirty one, the sayings of King Lemuel about again. We don't know anything about him, um, and let's just say it, we don't know uh, who he who he really was. And chapter thirty one. Um, you, I'm sure most of you will have remembered Proverbs 31, uh, the final acrostic poem uh, using each verse beginning with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet um, describing the wife of noble character. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I, I play, I, I, I jokingly emphasized jokingly play my wife up sometimes and say she's going to lose her Proverbs 31 status. Um, yeah. I'm not a male chauvinist, don't worry, but I do like to think I've got sometimes I've got a Proverbs 31 wife. Um, that's just me getting totally distracted there because I can see she's just arrived as I'm speaking, looking through the window. She's just arrived back coming back from Tesco's with the shop uh, and she's going to walk around the back so she doesn't disturb us. But what I'd love you to do now is quick, let's break into an activity. Um, what, I, what I'd like you to do is um, just stop and think. I'm just going to, we're not going to go into a breakout room for this, but just have a, just going to give you a minute uh, or, or, or two, just, just skim through the book of Proverbs or think if you've already got one in mind, that's great. Um, just think of a proverb that's relevant to you, to your current situation that challenges you. And just think, does it actually help you to adjust your life uh, in order to rise to its challenge? And, you know, just ask the Holy Spirit to come now and, and help you show you a proverb that, 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 that actually speaks to you. Um, so just give you a minute and, uh, you know, you can blank your screen so you, nobody's looking at you for a minute and uh, just go mute for a minute. I'll come back on in, in just a minute's time. Just have, have a think. And if you're really brave, you can... You could share it, um, just what you've probably speaking to you, just, you know, succinctly share it, how it's speaking to you in a situation you might be in, if you, if you feel confident, able to do that. Okay, have people managed to find a proverb that, that, that seems relevant to them? I know I've only given you a minute, <laughs> and it's perhaps totally, uh, maybe a silly thing to do to give you just such a short time. Um, and uh, yeah, okay, Anne's put one up here. Um, Proverbs 4, 20, 24 is my go-to medicine. The word heals, wonderful, uh, restores. Yeah, beautiful. Any, anyone want to just speak out? Um, you don't have to, we'll move on if nobody wants to do this. It might be just something to take away in your own hearts, but if someone wants to share just a proverb that really speaks to them today, what situation you're in, how it speaks to you. Um, and he says, really like Proverbs too, because it shows us how we need to make an effort to find it like hidden treasure echoed by Jesus in the parable too. Yep, thanks, Andy. That's great. It's what you're doing today, isn't it? School of Theology, you're searching out um, wisdom. Uh, yeah, fantastic. Um, yeah, I've just found one that is really, um, it encourages me, uh, Proverbs 24. Yep. Which says... Um, the lazy man will not plow because of winter. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I work in construction and winter winter can be 
a real story it can be something for you to think uh do i really want to go out um today and like yesterday in the morning it was absolutely absolutely uh, pouring and falling um and then obviously i just went out and then about like eight it all cleared and the skies were blue and the sun came out and we were all happy at work and we were excited yeah yeah i just saw this verse and i thought there you are it's it's so straightforward yeah yeah wonderful thanks thank you thanks that's great that's wonderful yeah um brilliant great and, and I'll, I'll i'll leave you you know we could carry on but it's, it's a great exercise sometimes just to sit in a group of people and, and say what proverbs are speaking uh to you it is as i said it's like the book of james in some ways and it's bringing remember proverbs what we want it to do is to bring something of heaven down to our situations psalms takes our situation up into the heavenly realms proverbs brings the heavenly realms into nitty-gritty you know uh where, where the rubber hits the road situation so it is a construction worker you know should we go out yeah look look you know i'm not going to be lazy i'm going to carry on um hey there's a there's a there's a, a lockdown on there's still things i can do i can still meet on zoom and study and gather with other people there's things you can yeah it's just practical um christ in all the scriptures yes um the next section 4.4 we're on now aren't we i think is is looking at that um is we do see uh, 3.4 isn't it christ in proverbs um wisdom of proverbs is more than a character attitude um it, it's you know it's all about christ and i think somebody once said i read my bible to meet jesus and i don't know why you read your bible but you find christ in all the scriptures it, reading your bible can be a, just a beautiful encounter with him and you think am i going to find christ in, in in the book of proverbs yes you are um you know this especially you find him in, in chapter eight especially um wisdom and I've, I've put some verses down in your handout there i'm only going to look at the first two for the sake of time but wisdom i was appointed from eternity from the beginning before the world began wisdom speaking well hang on a minute what does john 1 verse 1 says in the beginning was the word chapter proverbs 8 verse 27 talking about wisdom i was there when he set the heavens in place when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep john 1 you know carrying on verse you know two and three and the word was with god and the word was god through him all things were made without him nothing was made um you know proverbs 8 verse 30 then i was the craftsman the craftsman at his side hebrews 1 verse 2 his son talks about his son through whom he made the universe and you can go on looking at more of those ones together um just how we see christ in in, in the book of proverbs um which is wonderful um so the wisdom of proverbs uh, you, there's no doubt about it the wisdom of proverbs is identical with the incarnate word of the new testament of jesus uh, so for the christian the practical wisdom of proverbs finds its parallel and full expression in the life of christ when we say we love christ when we walk in his ways we're loving wisdom and 
as we love him, so we're practically outworking the maxims of Proverbs in, in, in the power, you know, by the power of the indwelling spirit. Um, you know, the Son of God, 1 John 5, verse 20, the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, and just wonderful to, to, to see all of that. Um, remember proverbs it is not a doctrinal set of statements so you can find some proverbs just to throw in at the end you can some find some proverbs which seemingly which which do you know contradict one another according to the situation uh, get lots of advice from loads of people for that situation next verse don't go around looking for loads of advice from people just go to you know don't get loads of counselors um, it depends on the situation. I think I just love the flexibility of the situation. This is this is not a dogmatic. You know, you can't take a, a single proverb and, and and take it. You know, this is this is for all situations. This applies. There are some, uh, I believe, are like that. But, but we need to look at it with care. I'll just share with you just sort of my favourite proverb because um, I I have one um, if I can find it. Um, Proverbs chapter one, and um, and it, it's it just it talks about what happens um, when we've messed up, and um, just the, I think the graciousness of God really. Proverbs chapter one verse twenty three in the English Standard Version says this: If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I'll make my words known to you. And for me, that's just a beautiful uh, thing. It's, um, it's, uh, don't, 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 please don't take this the wrong way, but it's almost worth um, sinning. So it isn't worth, it's never worth sinning, um, but it's almost worth making, messing up because if you turn, you know, when you've messed up, when you've made a mistake, God says that, you know, in, in, in Proverbs, it says, if you turn out my reproof, I'll pour out my spirit. Uh, to you. Proverbs 1 verse 23 in the English Standard Version. That, it's a, it needs a literal translation to get that. It says my spirit. Um, different translations translate it different ways, but the word in the original is spirit. Um, and I think, yeah, pour out your spirit, Lord. I'm repenting. Uh, pour out your spirit. That's just my favourite proverb. 10.30. Thank you. Um, so moving on to Ecclesiastes. Um, Proverbs got loads of topics. Ecclesiastes has only got one. And it's more of a sermon, uh, an introduction, a middle, a conclusion, and its subject is the meaning of life. Um, the, you know, the book's Hebrew title, Kolohet, uh, means the preacher or the teacher, and, but the, the, that's the Hebrew title. The title Ecclesiastes is actually taken as a transliteration of the Greek title used by the translators of the Septuagint. That's the you know, the, the um, Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And this Greek word indicates a person who calls an assembly. So it makes sense that the author identifies himself in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 1 by the Hebrew word kolohet, which is translated as preacher. So the author of the book isn't named, but just announced as the teacher, the kolohet. Uh, and many references in the book, however, suggest it's Solomon. Um, and I put those uh, down in the notes, so we won't look at those. Uh, but some scholars believe it was written towards the end of Solomon's life, as he reflects as an older man, he's reflecting on the meaning and purpose of life when lived first apart from God, 
and then in the light of God's greater purpose. Uh, on first reading, Ecclesiastes seems to be a very negative book. And I know lots of people struggle with it and sort of think, oh, and, and uh, uh, you know, should it even be in the canon? Um, well, you've got, you know, you've got some choices. You could either say, well, let's not, let's put it out. Let's not bother. Let's put it out the canon. Well, if you do that, you're going against centuries and centuries uh, of church tradition. So we can't really do that. So I think let's be honest for a minute. What a lot of us do is think, okay, it's part of the Bible. We don't get it. We don't understand why it's there. So let's just ignore it and push it to one side. I want to really encourage you to say, don't do that. I want to encourage you to say, actually, it's there in Scripture. We trust the Bible. We have to make this decision that the whole of Scripture is given to us as the inspired word of God. Therefore, it's there for a purpose. Invite the Holy Spirit to come as you start to read and say, I'm going to I'm going to read this and I'm going to learn something. And God is going to speak to me uh, through it. It's perhaps not as negative as you think it is. Um, if you need help, and we've only got a few minutes now, but, but you can get further help. I put in the recommended reading. There's a fantastic little a book by a guy called Michael Eaton, uh, which is a little commentary on Proverbs, where he actually shows and points and highlights, you know, what God is giving in Proverbs, the grace of God, the good in Ecclesiastes, the grace of God, the goodness of God uh, that's shown there. And I think that's a, that's a fantastic, it's my favourite little, just a short commentary on, on Ecclesiastes. Um, that's there. So you've got these, um, uh, you know, views on life, and it's sort of like meaninglessness is um, a, a key uh, title, you know, theme throughout it all. And you've got what you have in the book of Ecclesiastes is you a phrase that repeated, is it 28 times? Uh, yeah, um, you've got this, this phrase, under the sun, under the sun. And so when you read in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's important you don't, please don't take a verse, some of the verses from Ecclesiastes and say, that applies to me here and now, and this is my view on life. No, you've got an under the sun, the Kolohet, the teacher is giving an under the sun, life without God, under the sun. Uh, view of life but then you've also got um you know there's there's like a a, a line that's that's drawn uh where you've got earthly and heavenly realities there are heavenly realities that are in that uh, book as well and it's important we see them god gives god is good he gives you the you know nothing better i can't remember what i'm, I'm rushing through ecclesiastes but god gives us um the opportunity to really um work um, as, as somebody said, you know, in the testimony from, from Proverbs, construction worker, hey, as you go out and you go into the wreck and rain as a construction worker and you say, this is wonderful. God has given me the opportunity to work. This is an above the sun. You get above the cloud and the rain there. And you say, this is an above the sun view of work out in the cold and wet and rain. It's something God has given me. And suddenly that transforms what you do in the wet and rain. Um, you know, when you turn on, perhaps some of you, it's turning on your computer these days at home in lockdown. As you turn on your computer, don't say, oh, here we go again. I'm in lockdown. How awful, how miserable. Turn on your computer, say, come Holy Spirit, as the computer boots up, come Holy Spirit, and let the work that I do today be something that's, that there's a different dimension to it. Ecclesiastes is a book about two dimensions uh, and how miserable it shows you, yes, when you choose to live your life under the sun, or as Paul would say, in the flesh, um, the phrase he used, not talking about physical flesh, but a spiritual power zone. When I live my life like that, it's pretty meaningless. 
and miserable and doesn't have any sense. But if I can rise above that and live a life that's above the sun, or as Paul would say, in the spirit, in the power zone where the Holy Spirit is present, where I'm seeing in that invisible realm, not just in the visible earthly realm, suddenly my life takes on uh, a load more meaning. So the conclusion of the matter is, you know, um, is, 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 hey, come on. Uh, I know that there is nothing better, he writes in Ecclesiastes 3, 12 to 14. There is nothing better. This is positive news. There's nothing better for men and women than to be happy and to do good while they live. That everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men and women will reveal him. That, that's positive. <laughs> that's positive. Um, and, and, you know, Ecclesiastes 5, the end of it, 19 and 20. Moreover, when God gives any man or woman wealth and possessions and enables them to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. Hey, that's, I'll settle for that. <laughs> occupied with gladness of heart. And then, the, you know, the final appeal is to the young. Remember God, fear God, keep his commandments, live in the light of his coming judgment. Um, so, yeah, we were going to do an activity, but we'll, we'll move on to the Song of Songs. We've got to finish um, on this uh, note. 1,005 songs Solomon wrote, and this is his best one. Top of the Pops, um, Song of Songs. He's referred to seven times in the book, um, other references to the king. It's this fantastic story, isn't it, uh, of, um, you know, this, this man who comes in disguise and as a shepherd, um, he woos the shepherd, he, he, he woos the farmer's daughter, doesn't tell her that he's really the king. Uh, she, you know, they're going to get married. He says, I'm going away and I'll come back and we'll get married. And she still doesn't know he's the king. And while he's away, there's this wonderful sort of yearning and longing that she has. I want to see him. I want to see the one I really love. And then he returns and tell her, I'm the king. And, uh, and he returns as a king. Does that mean, does it any resemblances, any, any striking uh, parallels there you can think of? Hello, Jesus and his church, the bride of Christ. He's coming back as the king. We, he's wooed us. He's won us over. It, it, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful um, story. It's, it's romance. It's, you know, there's different ways of interpreting this song. Um, you know, there's certain you know, readers sort of very unhappy with sort of sexually explicit and sensuous passages, all in poetry, um, and, and sort of interpreted in different ways. And, and you can have the, the, the literal approach, which is it's a love poetry. Some people want to interpret it in that way, but it's almost like it's um, C.J. Mahaney, I put it in the in, in the references at the end, has written the book Sex, Romance and the Glory of God, where along with people like G. Lloyd Carr, sort of interpret it in a very literal way, but it, it, it's to do with sex and romance. The more common approach is the didactic approach, which says it's a vehicle of instruction, uh, and, and it's sort of this allegorical approach is, um, uh, you know, is 
the allegorical approach is that it's an extended metaphor um, and it's got hidden deeper meaning and it, it really is about Christ and um, his church and, um, and, 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 and looking at it that way. And when we read the Song of Songs, we can really begin to understand, actually, this is about Christ loving uh, his church. And he is passionate about his church. He's passionate about us. You understand Christ is really, really, really loves you. And, he, uh, and, and the Song of Songs, as we read it, we understand, yeah, it's quite legitimate. It's perfectly right for us to be madly deeply passionately in love with him um that it's it, it's at the level of our emotions you know god preserve us from just having some intellectual acceptance of some set of doctrine and some faith even as you come to school of theology on saturday every three months don't look on it as an academic exercise you know let the holy spirit just stir up in you a love for god a love for his word and a passionate desire to serve his purposes uh because that's the way you know song of songs is in the in the bible i believe to to really uh, stir our emotions uh that we love him that we we're, we're passionate about him i'm a man but i love him and we, we can express our love to him in in, in a romantic uh, way that you know he's the one we really really love um so um yeah so i put in summary i won't even go there but you can read sort of just the summary of the the four books that we've looked at and i've um time has gone but you, you if you do want to do some study i've put some books that this is just my what i found helpful in the past um just some good books there to, to read some of them are general um uh, but some of them you, you might find gordon fee and douglas stewart how to read the bible for all it's worth if you've not come across that that's a great sort of summary in a bible overview to do but i other ones are there. J. Sidlow Baxter, explore the book again, a summary, but you've got some that are specific um, to the books that are, that are good, good commentaries. Thanks so much, Dave. That was a brilliant session. I really learned a lot and enjoyed it. And thanks so much for giving up your, your Saturday morning to be with us.